Welcome back to Foundations in International Political Economy. Foundations in IPE is a showcase of interviews with foundational figures in the discipline of international or global political economy. The project is led by Dr. Stuart Shields from the University of Manchester and myself, Professor Alex Nunn from the University of Derby. You can find out more by visiting our website www.ipefoundations.org.uk where there are videos of the interviews and more information about the project. We're grateful for the support of the British Academy and the Levy Hume Trust. Video production was by Sam Jordan Films. Dr Sophia Price from Leeds Beckett University helped with the recording of the interviews and music is Awakening by Waterboy, which is available on Pixabay. In this episode, recorded in the summer of 2019, we interview Professor Stephen Gill, Distinguished Research Professor at York University, Toronto. Professor Gill's work on the international political economy of global governance and neoliberalism is some of the most widely read in international political economy. He has published widely read monographs on the Trilateral Commission and his book on power and resistance in the New World Order won the Outstanding Academic Title Award of Choice, the Journal of the American Library Association. With David Laws, he published a seminal early textbook on IPE, and more recently, he has published work on social reproduction with Professor Isabella Bakker, also of York University, and in this uh, interview series. So, I mean, what motivated you to first start to read and think about IPE? Good question. I, I... I've always been interested in in the world, and uh, I've been interested in different ways of looking at the world. Um, I started out studying art, literature, um, studied industrial relations, studied a bit of economics, um, kept changing the subjects that I was interested in because basically I wanted to understand more about the world. And uh, I ended up doing a PhD in sociology in terms of my academic trajectory. So I've never actually done, um, taken any courses in the two areas that I'm known for, which is international relations and uh, uh, what I call global political economy. And I know you wanted to ask a question about whether the term IPE was appropriate. Um, and I think it, you know, if you look at the world from different perspectives, I mean, I like, to, in, in retrospect, I think what I've been trying to develop without sounding grandiose is a little bit close to what, Brodel called the perspective of the world. You have to try and look at the world from different vantage points, from below, from the basic ways in which people live, the way that they communicate their cultures, the way that the cultures connect to their systems of political economy, to the relations that they have with other peoples, with powers, and so on. And if you look at that, that trilogy by Brodel, Civilization and Capitalism between the 15th and the 18th centuries, he tries to look at everything from above and below to try and get a comprehensive and integrated picture of the world. So I've always been interested in that. And as it turned out, at a certain point in my life, I got interested in international political economy, as it's conventionally called. Um, and it was really when I got my first ever permanent teaching job that I began to really get into it. Um, I did an MA in um, American political theory. So I was always interested in the, the question of America and America's place in the world. As you mentioned, other people have mentioned American imperialism. And when I was beginning to get into that, I was 
conscious of um, you know the ambivalence, the contradictory nature of this. The uh, you know what I later call the universal contradiction. The, you've got the civil rights movement, you've got the student movements, and that and the U.S. was still pursuing war in in Vietnam. So I, I was interested in more those kinds of questions and how you could understand them, how you could begin to relate to those issues. And then I went to Wolverhampton. Um, and I was appointed to teach political theory in American politics for my first permanent job. And I was in the shower after a, an indoor football match. Um, and the then chair of the school that I was in, a man called John Wildsmith, a very nice fellow, said to me, oh, by the way, Stephen, we, uh, we decided that we'd like you to teach the introduction to economics for the BA economics students. And I said, well... When? And he said, well, the beginning of term, which was about three weeks away. And uh, so I had to teach for the BSc Econ students all the first year economics, uh, including all the tutorials for the whole cohort of 80 odd students. So I learned a lot about economics in a very short period of time. <laughs> There'll be people uh, watching and listening to, to this mm. interview right at the start of their career and perhaps have a <laughs> similar experience. Well, yeah. Is there any survival tips you would give from that, from well, that the, time? The, 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 I mean, I, I can only say what I did, whether it's a survival tip or not, but the what I decided to do, I read a lot of interesting and radical stuff on American politics, and I, I was interested in, in the debates, especially on the new left in the United States. And, um, you know, I read many of the things that uh, um, um, people who were more progressively inclined would, would look at. So I decided to, um, to, to create this course as a debate between uh, the orthodox and the heterodox. And uh, the, the two textbooks that I used were Paul Samuelson's textbook, which is probably the best known textbook um, in, uh, um, in economics, and another one by Hunt and Sherman, which uh, was called something like Economics, um, Orthodox and Radical Views. I can't remember the title of it, but what I did was I divided up the readings week by week as a debate between the two and got the students to debate. And I managed to keep about a week ahead of them in terms of preparing the, the course of In those days, you had to do things like indifference curves and you used to have draw, you know, draw them out yourself. There was no technical aids. And, uh, you know, what I did was I had to work very, very hard. Uh, I was promised that I would teach American politics, which I eventually began to do three years later. And the political theory I was able to do the following year, but I had to do that plus a hodgepodge of other things, because they were just starting up loads of degrees programs. And you probably remember the Council for National Academic Awards. We used to, well, it's possibly a bit before your time, but it used to be the case when the old polytechnics were being created uh, in university form, they had to validate their degree programs externally. So um, you couldn't just mount a degree the way that you would at Manchester University or York University, where I work now. You had to get them approved by a central authority, which was called the Council for National Academic Awards. So um, we had to basically prepare these lengthy documents, and then we would have a visitation from the great and the good, you know, some very senior academics from other universities who would, you know, run the finger over whether our courses were, you know, were feasible and were up to date and so on. And we got a lot of courses through, but the, the secret at that time, including for me teaching the economics introduction, was 
I went to talk to colleagues and got advice from them and help from them. And we worked with each other and we all helped each other out. We we're very, very collegial and lots of young faculty that helped each other. And it was very creative because they're all similar age to me. They were, you know, shared outlook. And what they wanted to do was to create an integrated social science degree and to improve the economics degree and, you know, introduce more political economy and so on. So I got lots of help and I would work until 10 o'clock at night and then go to the pub and have several drinks and hope to get to sleep. And I get to Friday and then I go with everybody to the pub afterwards because it's very collegial. We'd all go with the students. And then I sleep all day on uh, Saturdays <laughs> and then get up on Sunday and think, wow. But I got through it somehow. It doesn't matter if you don't want to tell this story, but it, often when we speak in the pub or, you know, over a meal or something, you, you, and then perhaps because we've come from the same place or whatever, but you often tell a story of the kind of background in Leeds. And yeah. the, the, I, I don't know if you wanted to kind of elaborate on that kind of life story. Well, uh, as I said, Brodell um, um, and many other thinkers, you know, look at, look at life from the bottom up. I mean, I was also a literature student, so I read lots of novels and so on. And um, novels and historians tend to look at the big big picture. Um, I started, you know, in a, in a poor working class uh, background. I was the only boy in my um, school that ever went ever past eleven plus for I think over thirty years. And certainly, I was the only member of my entire extended family that ever went to university. Um, and my father had, I think, nine or ten brothers and sisters, and my mother had four sisters. So the, that's basically because of the class system and the way in which it, it operated. But the class system did at least give an opportunity after the Second World War to people like myself to go on to university and to, um, to make good. But, uh, so that, that was obviously very important for me because it enabled me to understand some of the peculiarities of the English, so to speak, one of which is its perverse class system. And it's even more perverse concept of pedigree, as if that matters to people. Um, but it does matter in British society. And in fact, the, the current um, Conservative uh, government seems to value people precisely according to their pedigree, as opposed to their intelligence and capabilities. But uh, that's, that's a political comment on the Brexit miasma that we're now going through. But So that background actually was very important for me. And uh, it, it enabled me to see see things from the vantage point of most people, as opposed to people who were in comfortable positions who were used to having clear expectations about the future. Not that I really knew what I wanted to do, and I was just talking to your uh, sons upstairs about the past, and the ones, they said, well, what, what, what did you want to do when you were growing up? And I told them one of the things I wanted to do was to be a DJ, and they all guessed the kind of DJ that, uh, or at least Sophia got the DJ right. Um, and the other thing I wanted to become was a professional footballer, and I trialed for Leeds, but in neither case was I good enough. And uh, I also wanted to become a, a, an artist, a sculptor. Um, and I was good enough to get into art school, but uh, my parents, who were working class people, said, no, no, you must become a teacher, get, you get yourself a secure job. So all of that shaped my upbringing, but I've always been interested in doing many different things. And I never really stuck with, with one thing over time. And... Um, and when I went to Wolverhampton, I took those experiences with me and I met David Law. David Law was the polar opposite to me in terms of personality. He's a, a teetotaler, non-smoker, 
he doesn't drive, and uh, he only um, finally settled down and got married, I think, when he was in his 40s. And um, a very shy man who stammers a lot, but and a very, very intelligent, thoughtful person. Actually, he went to Manchester University and he did, did his master's degree in economics there. And a very, very thoughtful development and international economist. Came from a Methodist family, very uh, devout family, but ethically a very clear-minded person and very knowledgeable about um, the global south in general um, and about uh, parts of Africa and uh, the Southeast Asia in particular. And uh, he encouraged me to think about doing work in, in, in international political economy. We shared a lot of readings together and then we developed a course. You know, we had to wait, we had to have it approved and so on, but we eventually began to teach it. And then we decided that we we're going to try and write a book, which is this book. And it's the most important book I've ever done. Um, and it was an attempt to create um, a way for people to generally approach the field. It is conventionally called IPE, but we call it global political economy. Do you want to know why we? Well, because most of the problems that we see around us, most of the, the bigger problems, by definition, global. Obviously, climate change, ecological changes, but twenty-four integrated, twenty-four-seven integrated capital markets, global communications grids, um, movement of people. You have, you know, enormous four billion people are tourists every year, and so on. So there are all of these interconnections and um, things which can't be understood through, you know, a, a simple reductionism of jurisdictional boundaries or simple systems of exchange. So it's not, you know, to use the jargon that we later used, which I did with Isabella Backer, power production and social reproduction. Um, you know, we wanted, to, it, it was the first attempt to sort of go beyond the states and markets type of framework, which is often conventionally used as a lexicon, and to introduce power and production. The social reproduction came later when I started to work with, with Issa Backer. Um, and we thought of it, as you know, ontologically global, but also ethically global, because the questions that we're facing are questions to do with the survival and the flourishing of human beings and the planet. So, and we actually had this in, in the book. We 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 sketched this out, and we we tried to lodge what we were doing in terms of the, the longer-standing traditions of political economy, the great figures, particularly nineteenth-century thinkers, who looked at the big picture, they had an integrated conception. So I was, I've always been leery of this IPE moniker um, because I felt it was too restrictive. Um, and well, I could, I could say more, but it probably just bore people. But the, when we first conceived of this book, we were unknowns from Wolverhampton. And um, we we, 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 we sketched out a, um, a plan for the book, a proposal, I think it was 10 pages with a summary of what each chapter would be, and we submitted it to uh, the publishers. The British publisher was Harvester Weechief, the US publisher was Johns Hopkins University, and they had it reviewed. And I won't, won't mention any names, um, and I won't say anything, cast aspersions on the International Political Economy Group of the United Kingdom, but 
when it was it was founded by Susan Stranger, who, by the way, she encouraged me to do all of what I'm doing here, and, and, and I can speak to that as well. But she, that uh, one member of that group, and Susan was not party to this, decided, having been asked by a publisher to review the proposal, to, to take it to the other members of the IPEG group, who convened in smaller numbers in those days, I think a couple of dozen people at the most, and uh, circulated this to the group to see if it met their approval and they thought it was feasible, which I think is fairly unethical behavior. And the response that was that, that was communicated by this individual to the publishers was it could never be done, that it could only be done in an edited book where different chapters were done by different uh, contributors. And uh, this is this we were then told by the publishers that uh, they wouldn't publish it because it, it couldn't be done. So I got on the train to Brighton to see the publisher. Um, and uh, I had a difficult lunch with him really? and persuaded him that they were all wrong. Wow. And you're a Yorkshireman, you know, yeah. understand this, you're from Leeds. Yeah. If somebody tells you you can't do something and you're from Leeds, you're going to prove that you can. <laughs> Makes you so, more determined. So, so that's, that's how I got into all this. And this was my foundational work. And uh, it took David, we had a very high teaching load um, there, and it took David and I five years from starting to write the book to finally get the, get the manuscript finished. It's 180,000 words. It's, I think it's 17 chapters. So, and it's got things in it, which since then, the field has tend to just drop as it, or not notice in a significant way. For example, it's got, it has it has the conceptual usual conceptual stuff, power structure hegemony, particularly the power of capital, where we develop that concept, um, and other uh, key key economic concepts such as terms of trade and so on were in there, but uh, it also had all the usual subject areas such as money, money and finance, trade and investment, production and transnationals, but it also had a chapter on oil and um, uh, energy. Uh, and how central that was to the post-war global political economy. Uh, it had a chapter on North-South. It had a chapter on East-West and communist states, because communist states actually existed when this was published mm -hmm. in, in Eastern Europe and in China today. And um, it also had um, uh, a chapter on militarization and military-industrial rivalry. And uh, it concluded with two future-oriented chapters, one on the future of American hegemony and, and the global economy. And then the final chapter was on scenarios, different scenarios, where we did something that, uh, that Robert Gilpin did and Robert Cox did in their work. And we sketched out different scenarios of the future and we evaluated them. And the one that we felt was most likely at that period was the, the transnationalization and the liberalization of the global political economy. And that is more or less what occurred since. So I think it stands up. Um, and the key thing about that, and again, this, you know, another influence, of course, when we were doing a lot of reading for this was Robert Cox, but Cox's work is very future-oriented. He's, he's historically grounded, but his notion of history is that history is not the past. It's the making of history. And I think that that's a, a key thing that, that many people in the field are just not focusing on. Uh, because... You know, we ought to be seeking to help to make history, to understand it, 
and to try and at least channel some of our mental energies towards making it uh, a more livable future for people. When this book was um, was reviewed, it was reviewed by the Times Higher Educational Supplement, which we were very pleased about. It's a very nice review. And the review heading was The Big Picture. And um, I think that that is, is my main contribution, to be able to, to look at the big picture of of the world, not not that in my my view of the big picture is is wholly adequate. Heck, nobody's ever could be, but but to try and look at the big picture as um, a contradictory um, but nevertheless dynamic entity that we which creates all these levels of subordination, inequalities, possibilities, opportunities, and so on. But to see it as as a as a as a giant or big picture. And in terms of the perspective I apply to this, um, again, to get back to the Brodell, it's, it's it currently, of course, it's a perspective on civilization and capitalism. Um, and I'm really interested in, and I think I'm making a contribution to asking the question about how those elements of the world contribute to the health of people and the planet. And I want to think about the future of people and the planet. Um, um, and uh, uh, well, we'll get to this later, but in terms of current work, um, Isabella and myself and some other colleagues are, are launching uh, precisely a research program on that question for, about the future of world order. Okay, so we'll come to that in a second. I mean, I, I don't know if you want to say anything about ideas like the structural power of capital, disciplinary neoliberalism, um, institutionalism, which, you know, the, the kind of institutionalised world order kind of stuff that, that you've been particularly um, known for. Yeah, well, I, well, I can. I, I, I mean, you had a question. There is a question that you, you sent to me about discipline. So I'll, I'll come mm. to disciplinary power capital in that light because I think that'll relate it to the academic. Yeah, point. that's really interesting. Um, but um, as I said, I've got sort of two identities that, I, that, that people uh, connect to with me, but they're actually both interconnected, the international relations and, and the uh, global political economy. The, the, another key book that I did, you know, disappointing cover, unfortunately, Cambridge University Press was not known for it, the, the, the grandeur of its covers, because this has been a series. Um, I'm very proud of this book because I think it's, it's one of the few books in the field, in both fields, that actually deals with the ideology and consciousness of a major component of the world ruling classes. So it is the view from the top. And um, you know, one of the reasons I did this was I did it, I, I started the research for my PhD. And um, I did that, by the way, when I was teaching full time. Um, so it, was, it, it took a while to get, get the PhD finished. But uh, Steve Berman, who is an Americanist at, at Birmingham, he's now at Sussex University, he, he encouraged me to engage with the powerful thinkers and the powerful figures if they were prepared to engage with me. So um, I, I did and um, discovered that this organization that was that was founded by David Rockefeller involved 300 plus very powerful, virtually all men, drawn from both political and civil society throughout the world in the richest countries of the world, who were not richest non-communist countries in the world. Um, we're, we're, we're trying to produce a framework, a shaping of world order, and the shaping was roughly in the con in, consistent with this transnational liberalism notion. 
Uh, and they were seeking to outflank communism or, or to incorporate communism. They had a strategic objective and they had a set of, they had a language of their own, which very rarely used the word capitalism, but they're all pro-capitalists or were capitalists. Um, so I engaged with these people and I did a research program which involved me doing 140 in-depth interviews with people like David Rockefeller, Zbigniew Brzezinski, Paul Volcker, you know, really significant figures to try and understand what they were trying to do in a precise way, both in terms of their intellectual frameworks and the ideology that they would use and the form of consciousness that they had. And I had done some research uh, seminars in Wolverhampton on methodology and the philosophy of social sciences, on the concept of ideology and on the great transformation. And these were all relevant to this. And um, so I, I, did, I studied uh, ideology a lot. And this was a work that was principally a work in ideology and consciousness, but it was on the terrain of class formation and the ruling elements in the global political economy. And I don't think it'll ever be done again, anything like that, because I, again, I was an, an unknown person. So I, I really didn't pose any threat to any of these people, but it took me a few years to get round the houses. And I did interviews um, in North America, Western Europe and Japan and produced this book. Um, so that's something again in the field that you, you don't see enough of. You see the Amsterdam School, for example, they talk about transnational class formations and so on, but none of them have actually gone into the belly of the beast to actually really find out mm. more about them. Um, so, so I think that, that that's, that's, that's an important contribution. As a quick footnote to that comment, it's actually, you know, I give that book, you know, finally got a copy of uh, my own copy of it after all, you know, having read it as a PhD student. I give that to every single PhD student, mm. you know, that, that, that I work with mm -hmm. and say, if you want to know how you actually do really good uh, critical scholarship that isn't just some vague you know, ideas about mm -hmm. class formation, etc. This is how you do it. And I think it's, you know, when was that published? 1991. Yeah. yeah. And it still stands up. And yeah, I, I, I hope it does. I mean, actually, by the way, um, I I have all of my, the interviews and the documentation really? from that. And I'm creating an archive at York University so future scholars can use that if they ever that should. That would be great, yeah. There's, there is also a Cox archive that's been created there as well with, with this paper. Some colleagues are doing that there, so that'd be a resource for people. I, I wonder if there's something to be said about the contemporary moment there as well, because they, you know that group of people very much shaped an institutional and ideological environment that broadened itself out. So perhaps for 20 years after that, that at that point in time, it wasn't as if there was a small cadre running the world economy. Um, but perhaps we're in a moment of time where there is quite a small group of people that are shaping, you know, the way in which institutions, or at least attempting to shape, reshape the way institutions are working against a kind of liberal transnational. Well, yeah, the, the hegemony of the, uh, if you were. You could call it kind of a liberal cosmopolitanism connected mm. to mm. to the to the dominance of transnational capital. It's ruled the roost for many many years, but its contradictions started to really surface with the uh, two thousand and eight financial crash, and the uh, almost thoughtless and heartless way in which the, the powers that be in many countries reacted to that and imposed austerity and so on. 
And that, I think, created the context for people like Trump to become electable. And, um, you know, it's, it's very clear that they, they have a kind of reactionary transactionalism, which is juxtaposed as the major alternative pro project of dominance um, right now. And uh, it, you can see it surfacing in all kinds of other contexts. Uh, Bolsonaro is, a, is, a, is an example. And, a, and in a sense, Bolsonaro reflects precisely the logic of this with, you know, fostering the interests of agribusiness. Uh, trying to use every possible means, including constitutional and other means, to destroy the left, uh, being willing to to sacrifice the 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 Amazon, and you know it's, it's the, the future lungs of the earth and biodiversity, and he's very consistent with with Trump. So there is a huge attack on um, a world order which already was unsustainable, but these are people that are going to make it even more unsustainable. But there are a lot of other forces at work as well. You know, Marx talked about the, you know, the, 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 the sixth great power in Europe, which was the power of, of the emerging working classes. Well, if you think about it on a much more global level, that, that's a narrow way to think about the question. Um, in, in this book, for example, and in other places, I talked about uh, the, the different elements that, that contest the world order. And I, I coined the phrase a postmodern prince to try and talk about you know, a, a vast number of different forces that all have something in common, which is precisely the thing I'm interested in, which is making the world um, um, more of a possible world for people on the planet. And there are many examples of this. I mean, even now, this G7 summit that's just taking place, which is a bit of a pantomime, you can see very clearly that right now the pressure on the leaders to deal with climate change is so intense that they're going to have to do something. And you all could see that in boardrooms as well, Shareholders are pushing the big energy, big energy to, to move towards more renewable sources of energy to lower climate imprints. So right now, actually, the theorization of this, and this is central to this research program, is that we're in a kind of interregnum. You know, that, that, that post-war order is, is, is beginning to, to show signs of disintegration. Some of the forces that are causing that disintegration are very reactionary. But there are also progressive forces that are looking towards a longer-term future. They don't just see everything as immediacy to do with consumerism to satisfy short-term needs. So it's yeah, it's a key moment I think in in history. It's a you know a convention, a kind of a historical turning point, um, or an interregnum because the turning the, the 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 signals of the turning point are not entirely clear yet. Um, Correct. I mean, did you want to say any more about disciplinary neoliberalism oh, or yeah. about new constitutionalism? Um, well, the, the, there are, I, I, I sort of put together a troika of different elements um, in, in, theoretically. Um, the, and I'll come to the power of capital and, and disciplinary neoliberalism. First was market civilization, which is partly what I'm talking about. A consumerist, energy-intensive me-oriented, possessively individualist, ecologically myopic perspective on the world, which is attempts to reproduce the overconsumption patterns, the pollution patterns and all the rest of it to satisfy the needs of a relatively small proportion of the world's population at the expense of the planet and other people. And of course, it, you know, that, 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 that draws people in. It's, it's drawn in uh, you know, post-Soviet Russia, it's drawn in key elements in, in China, although under very difficult political conditions, because they hadn't seen an alternative pathway. 
Um, so that's the central idea that there is this civilizational complex which is driven by capital and the turnover time of capital, the accelerationist features of capital. Um, and then, okay, what forms of political economy sustain it? So disciplinary neoliberalism relates principally to the political economy and governance forms of which the legal and constitutional elements, the new constitutional elements, as they call them, have often been neglected. They are crucial to the nature of capital, how capital can accumulate, how jurisdictional power is, operates, how sovereignty operates, and so on. So each of these are, as it were, the cultural, civilizational, the political economy, and the legal, juridical are parts of a kind of a troika of forces which serve to constitute contemporary capitalism with all its contradictions and, and possibilities. Um, and the power of capital issue and disciplinary neoliberalism, I think power of capital is both structural and direct. The structural feature is basically the context for action, the framework of action, the historical context, the historical structure is constituted in ways that tendentially favor the interests of capital and capital accumulation and the capitalist state is beholden to that those structures and is permeated by them. Um, whereas the direct power of capitalists is the thing that most political scientists would focus upon. They'd focus upon lobbying, um, um, electoral systems, um, various ways in which the capital can persuade and influence and so on. And the two, of course, are in interdependent. Um, so that was connected to you know, disciplinary power in my um, theorization, which is an idea that I took from Weber, Durkheim, and um, um, Foucault, but then I gave it the Gramscian and Marxian inflection, um, because the power is, it, it, it drives deep into our society, so it's very capillary. Um, it's disciplinary in the sense of its modes of inclusion and exclusion. Certain elements are included, certain uh, elements are excluded, certain elements are punished, some are elements are rewarded. So it's a system of incentives as well, and it, and it permeates everything. So, for example, the, the question about do I see IP as a discipline? Well, I see whatever we call the field as being disciplined by these structures. We live in a capitalist society where capital is the reach and extension of capital has deepened to the point where it, it inflects everything that's done in our field. And it also inflects the way in which people gain rewards in our field, the incentives that they get. People are given money for doing research projects which are connected to what Cox would call problem-solving perspectives, to solve the problems of the system so it reproduces itself over time and the, the, the people who are the more critical theorists who see beyond and see alternatives or different ways of looking at the system, they don't get the big research grants typically, not in all cases, but a good example, for example, is, is climate change. It's something that I'm very interested in. It, with climate change, um, there are many bright and good people thinking about all kinds of ways to to deal with climate change green new deals and so on and so forth but basically it's to do with reorienting or recalibrating or rechanneling the existing system so will it ever work i personally have doubts that it can work but certainly some of it's going to be very helpful anything that stops 
the relentless increase in in production, the consumption of fossil fuels and so on, which will be good for the planet, is a very good thing. And of course, you need technical specialists to do this who will be problem solvers. But if you look at it from the viewpoint of the, the health and well-being of the planet and its people as, a, as an entity, as the biosphere, well, your problematic's completely different. You think about it in a different way. You think about making changes of a completely different order, qualitative order. So, um, so that that's you know that, that that that's a problem. It's a problem for the field, and it's the reason that that problem exists is precisely because of this overdetermination of capital in the way that the agendas and, and thought processes of the field tend to operate. Sure. So. If you were trying to think of uh, not necessarily that specific problem, uh, but you know, trying to think about you know, your kind of future orientation of where critical studies should go, um, is IPE a good place to start that thinking from? Well, it's a good place to start if you um, if you widen the conception, you know, ontologically and ethically, to the global. Um, that's not to say that states are not important or the interactions across state boundaries, etc. is not important, but it's only part of the bigger picture. Um, the thing I would say to are you asking for newcomers to the field or just pe people generally? Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah. Almost in a, you know, <laughs> why, you, why bother coming and doing my third year undergraduate course on international or global political economy? Well, I think it's worthwhile taking your course because it will widen everybody's perspective and horizons and, and, and it will enrich their thought processes. So anybody should anybody that's capable of studying a course like that sh should do it. And I teach many undergraduates. And But what I try to do when I teach them is always to say, look, you are the future. These, these issues that we're going to talk about may be when we talk about the 19th century and Polanyi or we talk about 18th century capitalism a la Brodel. We're going to try and learn from that to understand today and where we might be going tomorrow. And I try to focus on the things which are germane to their everyday lives. But yes, they should. And they, and they you know, we don't have students that are necessarily as well prepared for courses at that level as you would at, at Manchester, because our students can basically say almost anything they want to do. It's like a cafeteria system. And you have to start from scratch in every, every course. But it's worthwhile and the students seem to get a lot from it. But if I were, you know, thinking about going into it academically, well, the first thing I would say is it's bloody difficult. It's a really difficult field. I used to teach American politics, which was a piece of cake to teach and prepare by comparison. Um, you know, the time I was teaching it, there was still the great legacy of Ronald Reagan. I could tell stories about Ronald Reagan, you know, in his B-movies and... Um, the fact that you know he wasn't really in control, he was had Alzheimer's, and the, the astrologers were telling him what to do. I mean, that's easy, but global political economy requires a lot of concentration of thought and coverage of things. So if you if you start out in that, you've got to have a longer view in mind. And um, what I tell students who ask me that question is, I say, well, look, you, what's important for you? What was important for me was to understand. Uh, the nature of power and the nature of justice and injustice in the world. That's what motivated me. So that's why I did the the American hegemony thing. I did the research on the powerful. And I've done other things since, which are to do much more with articulating the question of justice and, um, you know, power from below, so to speak.
So it's very hard to do it, but it's worthwhile. And there's plenty of opportunities for people because it's still a relatively young field. Um, and there's, there's plenty of scope to do lots of different things. It doesn't mean so you have to always have the big picture, but you've got to be able to do your particular piece of research, but somehow connect it to a bigger picture. I don't know if you want to say some more about the kind of people that have influenced you. I know there's been a, a number of, um, yeah. there's some I know of and perhaps there's some I don't know of, but I mean, if, if you'd like to tell the story of those kind of human relationships right. shaped. Right, well, I've already mentioned David Law, yeah. and I was speaking to David yesterday. It turned out that I didn't re I never knew this actually, but his, my mother was 91 on Sunday, and he phoned me at my mother's because I told him I was going to be there, and he told me that he was 73. He was having his 73rd birthday. He's older than me. Uh, so I wished him happy birthday. But, yeah, we had a chat and caught up on a few things. But I'll never forget David. I mean, he, he's a very, very generous and patient person. So I learned a lot from him. I learned a lot from another colleague who was an old friend, who I was later best man for, uh, a, a sociologist, sociological theorist and criminologist called Frank Pierce. He wrote a book called The Crimes of the Powerful, which I'd recommend to anyone one of the greatest books of criminology written in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, and my the chap who ended up being my PhD supervisor, Steve Burnham, was very important and influential. Um, he encouraged me to, to do a lot of the things that I do. Uh, very generous guy. Um, Susan Strange was very nice to me. She was very supportive. She was my, my PhD examiner, where I had the shortest PhD um, um, examination on record which lasted 20, 20 minutes she asked me two questions at the beginning the other nine men in robes were silenced and she said to them all gentlemen i think we've heard enough from stephen let's go and do the paperwork and he can phone his significant other so she dragooned them you know she she <laughs> frog marched them out and then she uh, she came back in and she said right stephen what's your poison i said well i have a gin and tonic she said i'm going to make that a triple so we went to the uh, we went to the common room and had a drink wow. together. But she was always very supportive. And by the way, she said to me afterwards, she said, uh, um, look, I disagree with everything you say, but you say it very well and I respect you for it. And she always <laughs> encouraged me to do what I, exactly what I do. So they, they were influential. And then, of course, um, these are individuals as opposed to, you know, thinkers. And uh, I met Robert Cox through through Susan. She, she first of all, gave me... Um, Cox's manuscript of his book, Power, Production and World Order, and she said, you, want, you probably want to read this. Uh, she said, he sent it to me, I've sent my comments back, but you, you need to read this. So she gave me the manuscript copy of it, and uh, so I, and I wrote to Cox because I was approached for uh, his jobs um, in, um, in, in North America, and I said, well, can you give me some advice, because... I don't think I'm going very far in academia in Britain. And he wrote back saying, well, they're all good places to go to, but you might want to consider applying for a job here. So I did. But Susan introduced me to him. And, um, of course, he was a great influence at that, that stage. But the formative influences were, were, were those colleagues early on. Um, and they introduced me to, you know, some of the other the, the thinkers that you encounter through reading. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a whole lot vast range of those. Yeah. And what's the current project? Well, actually, I've, I've forgotten one other significant individual who has been a significant mm -hmm. influence because I happen <laughs> to be married to her. I'm not saying it because, because she's my wife, but what Issa, Issa enabled me to do was to 
completely look at the world in a new way when I went to Canada, much more than Cox, because Cox is much more kind of a conventional patrician type of person. Um, but uh, she introduced me to a lot of new things, and I learned a lot from her. And by the way, um, I learned a lot from David Law, and I learned a lot from, from Issa. And in terms of the people I've learned from the most, those are they're probably the two most important individuals. Yeah. And the current projects you're working on there? Well, our future project. Yes, it's. Um, let me just find the title of it for you. I never remember titles too well. It's it's called Power Production and Social Reproduction in the Making of World Orders. And um, as I said, it, it's 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 a research program which involves. Um, actually, there's one other person that's been influential. That's part of this group, which is is he's a physician, a senior physician called Solly Benatar who used to be the, the head of medicine at the University of Cape Town, and he, he works f from uh, at the University of Toronto as a visiting professor. Um, and he's taught me a lot about health, looking at the world. He's a bioethicist. He's one of the world's leading bioethicists. So this is a, a, a research program which would between Issa Becker, myself, and Sally Benatar are the core people, and um, several others who um, will be working with us and a number of our PhD students have been involved in this. And they're very enthusiastic about the, about the whole thing. But it's basically looking at world order from those three broad dimensions. So when we were talking earlier about Bolsonaro and Trump and so on, versus the, you know, the, the post-war advocates of the liberal international economic order, and the, that, that liberal hegemony is there, plus the contestation from below, and also... The, the elements of power that, that, that stem from exclusions and inclusions. So therefore, we're looking at settler colonialist societies in particular and the way that they, they've dealt with Aboriginal peoples and the dispossession of Aboriginal peoples. So different dimensions of power. Then production, which is basically two flanks. One is the, the restructuring of production, particularly connected to uh, the introduction of uh, machine learning, automation, um, labor-displacing technologies, um, service-oriented technologies, surveillance in the workplace, other, other elements in the restructuring of production, and their links to both migration, flows of migration, um, and um, sort of the politics of, politics of labor. And then the, the, the other flank in the production level, which connects to the third, is, is, on, is energy and climate change. Um, and the contestation over the future concerning climate change, everything from Green New Deal versus uh, Extinction Rebellion. And then the, uh, the final flank is, is on social reproduction and health, um, which is mainly to do with care and well-being. I don't think there'll be, we, we've, we've got enough resources to look at education in any, in any detail, but it's very important. The work you're doing on that's very important, by the way. Um, and that will really focus on um, the restructuring of, of healthcare systems and global health, but looking at it from the vantage point of planetary health, planetary in the double sense of the people on the planet and the, the biosphere. Um, and there will be um, the there will be a deeper focus on inclusion and exclusion, um, not just inequality, but you know elements that are connected to the governance thereof, um, and 
a lot of that will be connected to the nature of migration. The idea being that even though international migration is relatively small globally, real migration, i.e. people moving from one part of a country to the other, typically from the countryside to the city, is gigantic. Four billion people in the last 15 years have, have done that, mainly because of the restructuring of production or, the, by, or seeking, seeking shelter from environmental uh, dangers or the, from dispossessions or whatever. There is a whole series of factors that are causing this, but uh, all of that is really intimately connected to the restructuring of social reproduction on a world scale. So we're looking at those three flanks and then how they fit into the, the governing and geopolitical structures of world order. So it's meant to be at least a five-year research program involving, well, hopefully we'll, we'll get the research money for it, um, which we might not do because it's <laughs> critical, but um, uh, our students are really into this, our PhD students. They, they've, they've been really interesting in terms of us developing this, and I have a happy four weeks when I get back to write it up before it has to go <laughs> four in. Four weeks. Yeah, not very much because I've been terribly busy this year. Um, so, but that's that's the plan, yeah, to do that. Um, you mentioned PhD students. So, if you were giving advice to, I mean, obviously you do to your own PhD students, but those that might be watching this film or listening to it to to the audio, what what advice would you give to them? Well, the first thing I I do and say to them, um, and you, you can never be entirely sure whether they answer answer in a truthful way, but I say you got to you got to work with somebody you like. Uh, because I don't work with people I don't like. I just don't do it anymore. I've had to, I have to put up with them sometimes. For example, there would be the odd chair of department or, you know, an administrator that is not a very pleasant human being. But I don't have to work with them on an intellectual project. But working with people, I have to like the p person. And you, you've got to know that you're going to learn from that person. And that's almost as important as to who, almost more important than the, who the person is. Because I didn't really, my supervisor was Steve Berman, but he didn't really do any supervising. He just encouraged me. Um, because intelligent people can usually do it. And you just give them a little guidance and you, as long as you reassure them and you support them by writing the reference letters and so on. So you want somebody who's going to be dependable. You don't want somebody who's got your thesis draft on his desk for two years. I've heard of a number of American professors who have done that, particularly to students that they try to oppose uh, getting on. So you've got to be generous, and but they've got to have enough time to do it. And if this is the area you're interested in, realize that you've got to have a longer view of where you want to go and what the career structure is, and your your supervisor has to advise you about that. It's not easy. It's not easy to get that first job. That's really the hardest thing that anybody has to do. Um, and, you know, it's... But the most important thing of all is you've got to really be interested in what you want, what you're doing. If you're not interested in it, don't start. Because it's very tough doing a PhD. It's very rewarding because they call you a doctor for the rest of your life. And believe me, if you go to the doctors or you go to the optometrist, you get better treatment because you're a doctor somebody. Um, so, you know, it's, it, it's, it, there, are, there are real rewards, but, you know, it, you, nothing comes easy. And of those junior scholars um, that you've worked with, um, whose work would you recommend you know, people read? 
you know, who, who, who's doing the kind of, you know, okay, the project's you, called the foundations of HPE, but if you were thinking about, you know, the frontiers. Junior scholars today, you mean? Yeah. Well, I, I produced uh, a name which is, you know, rests uneasy with people in conservative Britain, and I call it the Northern Intellectual Powerhouse. And it comprises uh, academics from some of the um, northern cities of Great Britain, and uh, it includes the two individuals who sit in front of me here. Um, and all of the members of that group um, that are British-based are very gifted people. And the and you can list them all if you like, you know, in a footnote. I don't need to go through all the names. Some of the people in that group are my former or current PhD students. One of them is called Paul Foley, who is from Newfoundland, and uh, Alex has read his work, you know, in, when we were doing the workshops. Uh, another is Miles uh, Carroll, who's in Japan. Um, these are all outstanding young people, and they will go far. I've got, the, there's a new crop of PhD students that are coming through, I'm sorry you're working with. They excite me every time. I learn so much from all these, these people. They keep me alive. So there's lots of great stuff. There's lots of young, young people around of the persuasion that I rate, I mean, I'm not going to say anything about people who, who are um, more to do with the positivist orthodoxy of the Harvard School. You know, that, that's another element of discipline. You know, they discipline their field epistemologically and sociologically, and they prefer certain types of people to others. I hate people who do that. Uh, so, yeah, these, I mean, you can list them all. There's loads of them. And they, 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 when I see people like that coming through, I just I know there's a, there's a great future ahead for the field. Let's hope it's for the planet as well. Great stuff. That probably... Oh, you got them. Yeah, so, go on. Sorry. And then the other thing that we've asked everybody... Um, uh, yeah. uh, you know, I suppose you know, really as the interviews kind of wind down, Alex has one more... Question, but I've always been interested in uh, any suggestions that you have as to you know the projects about the foundations of the discipline, etc. Mm -hmm. you know, who should we interview? No, um, we've probably interviewed them all. Well, yeah, but you know, then people have kind of also, you know, we've had a couple of really interesting kind of uh, slightly kind of curveball suggestions for people who we've not necessarily initially thought of. Yeah, they're not curveballers, well, and yeah, but they're, they're, we just didn't think of them. That, that's yeah. It. yeah. Um, so, you know, who have we done so far? Um, Bob well, Denmark. Um, Randy. We, um, Chris Chastone. Craig, Craig Murphy. Murphy um, Marion Marchand. Uh, and there's, you know, you know, people, you know, we've got kind of Case, Hank, people like that on the list as well. Mm -hmm. But just, yeah, you know, it was just, a, you know, one of those kind of questions that if you kind of had a... I don't know, any thoughts about what you do really? Yeah. Um, well, um, well, it depends on what, how you define foundations. I mean, it, the, there is there are lots of younger people who could could speak very eloquently about that. Uh, you know, not as old as me or Case Van der Pyle. Uh, yes. So, you know, is, is it people who are old? People who have been around a long time? The idea for the project was people who were around. Uh, the kind of inception of yeah. IPE as a new discipline. Well, you know that that's really going back to the late seventies, early eighties. Yeah. It's conventionally defined, and some of those people are not around anymore, like mm. Andre Gunder Frank. Yeah. 
you know, and Cox is not around anymore. Susan Strange is not around anymore. If you were able to speak to people like that, they would yeah. they would have a, a big, a, a, you know, a long delay perspective on, on on things, and they would uh, they they would enrich your, your what you're doing. I mean, I, I think it might be a good thing for you to just perhaps ask some of the younger scholars that are doing uh, exceptional work now mm. where they think their foundations have come from. And I think that that will give it more of a kind of a lineages perspective. So, um, you know, I'm not going to tell you who they should be, uh, but you know, some of them are in the Northern Intellectual Powerhouse Group. Um, and you don't have to go very far to, for, for them. No. And they don't have to come from Canada to speak to you. Um, so, um, you know, one, one thing I would say is you, you asked uh, something a bit earlier about, um, you know, the, the nature of the field. There, there, there is some of some of what goes on in the field. I think is of, it, it's really of not much use for the health of people on the planet. An example of this would be that that endless debate that went on about the English and the American schools. To me, this is epistemological reification. It's the fallacy of misplaced concreteness. I mean, why put a Canadian, a proud Canadian, like Cox, in the English school, etc., etc.? The the point is that even if you did that. You do not leave out people like Chase Dunn, the world systems theorist. You don't leave out from the American side all of the union of radical political economics, the Bowles and Gindis people. And all. The, this is a huge tradition. Um, and there are many different traditions in, in Britain as well, as you know. So, you know, if you are attempting to somehow reflect the, the range of different um, lineages or foundations then at least you know at least do it without wearing blinkers i mean it's just it's not helpful and there's too much work like that in the field where people just engage in uh, polite tittle-tattle uh, of the wrong kind it's i haven't got enough time left on the planet to waste getting engaged in debates like that but i would ask some some of the younger folks um I've, did you speak to craig murphy you didn't mention yeah. him. Yeah, yeah, Craig. Craig would be very good. He he has a very good overview of of, of things, and he's very fair minded. Um, the the chap actually somebody else who impressed me. The chap who um, I forget. I'm terrible at remembering names. The chap who wrote the book about austerity, a dangerous something or other. Mark Blythe. Yeah, I think he's quite an interesting guy. Mm. Um, he's a newer generation. He's a bit more of your. Mm. Um, um, your age group. Um, let me just think who else. The idea oh, is to have a second tranche of this, which is like the, uh, you know foundations and frontiers. So yeah. People okay. writing. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Anyway, sorry not to be. No, 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 no that's no, fine. No, that's great. That's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I usually finish. <laughs> I mean, we, we kind of try and treat this as an organic conversation, so we can instrumentally ask some of the questions and not some of the others. But we try and finish with, you know, so. That, what should we, be, we have asked? You know, is, is, there so, asked? is there something on, you know, that we should have asked about this topic that we, we didn't? No, I think a good question is <laughs> there is a certain degree of illiteracy in, in the, amongst the practitioners in the field. Um, and it's not clear to me that that illiteracy has, is reflected in the scholarship. I mean, um, I've looked at some textbooks, for example, that uh, are purporting to pr produce a different perspective, um, that try to, uh, you know, invoke 
some of the, the historical thinkers in the field, um, such as Liszt or, or Marx and so on. And that kind of early foundations of political economy is important. I think you should ask people what, you know, what level of literacy they have about that mm-hmm. and how that connects to what they're thinking about. Because one of the things that's characteristic of a, of a, of a field that is, in a sense, um, you know, self-disciplined or is disciplined by the forces that we're talking about is the ability to eradicate, you know, critical or radical thought. So, for example, this book, the one that I've talked most about, I could talk about all the books for as long as that, by the way, but this book, um, we were approached to do a second edition of this book. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first edition of this book was published by, uh, I told you, Harvester Wheatsheaf and um, Johns Hopkins, but Harvester Wheatsheaf was then bought by Simon & Schuster, and then Simon & Schuster was bought by Paramount, and then Paramount was bought by Viacom, which is one of the biggest media conglomerates, and so by the time it came to us for us to consider doing a second edition, because this was very, this book sold over 20,000 copies. Wow. It was used wow. in hundreds of universities worldwide. It. <laughs> it's yeah. very, very successful. Yeah. Um, the first publisher contract that we had was um, a very simple, uh, typical academic publisher's contract, 18 clauses, very straightforward. When, this, when their contract offer, which, in, which came with a big increase in royalties, by the way, it uh, was about that thick. It had about 84 clauses, all of which dumped all of the uh, risk on our shoulders, mm. but also gave the publishers the right to dictate the form and the nature of the, of the, of the second edition. And also, if need be, they could, they could cannibalize it. They could, mm. So in other words, there is a chapter on Marxism and the world system, and they could take that out if they felt that the, um, the the market in the United States wouldn't be amenable to purchasing a book wow. with, with that in it. But the, but the other thing is it had a, it had a ruthless regime of, of, of revision where every two or three years you'd have to revise it because it was widely used as a textbook. Um, and if you did not follow that regime, they could get other people to do it for you and it would be published under your name. So we, you know, we this was sort of non-negotiable with them. Um, so we, we had a meeting with them, which didn't go well, and we we never did do it a, a subsequent edition of the book. Uh, so, so I think you know having people in the field who understand the different lineages of, of thought, because the conception of this book is the different perspectives within Marxism, within liberalism, within realism, within feminism, within the, the variety of different perspectives, they help to constitute, albeit unequally, unevenly, the nature of the, of the political economy. They are social forces. So that was the whole conception of this book. And I'd like to see more work where that kind of understanding about the origins and lineages, foundations and so on, is, is understood and is appreciated. Thanks for listening to Foundations in International Political Economy. We hope you'll check in with us again soon. You can subscribe to the podcast series on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, or on Spotify. Or just go to the website www.ipefoundations.org.uk to find out more.